Totally Football Show. Dateline Anfield. Arsenal are like Donald Trump because they have problems with the press, they're made to pay for a stormy performance, and the Reds have them in their pocket. Elsewhere, Newcastle stuns Spurs, Palace do United, Chelsea meet the Farker, and are Watford ready to say no gracia? There's so much to discuss in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Special sounds from what was a special year that we'll be commemorating a little bit later on, of course, listener. But today's new kids on the block for you are Tom Williams. Hello, James. Hi, Tom. You're just back from your first ever visit to Tottenham's brand new spanking stadium. Yes, I am. Woof. Daniel Story's here. You've been all the way to Anfield. I'm back. Good morning. Crucially, yes. And in from sunny Southampton, it's the Athletics' Carl Anker. Good morning, James. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, listener, or evening, depending upon your time zone. Are you enjoying the season? Saints' win that you witnessed there against Brighton means that three games in, everybody's got at least three points, except for Watford. Is that rare, you ask? It is. This uh, Check this bit of ticker paper spewing out of Duncan Alexander. It's the first time since 81-82 that 19 or more teams have had three points after three games. Wow. Historic. I mean, it's been it's been a kind of interesting... Everybody's got something yeah. apart from Watford. Ten, half the Premier League on four points, which is having obviously won one, drawn one, lost one, which seems remarkably open given that we thought it might be skewed towards the top again. Well, Grant Welter makes the point. All the teams you talked up in last week's podcast lost this weekend <laughs> and all the teams you talked down won. It's a funny old game. It certainly is, Graham. Uh, loads of surprises then. Palace, uh, Newcastle. One result that did go the way we expected came at Anfield. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Liverpool 3, Arsenal 1, Saturday tea time. Absolutely blistering stuff from the European champions. Tom and Daniel, you were both there. Must be quite something to be there in person to see that kind of a performance. Yeah, it was um, it was a very enjoyable game. Um, Arsenal approached the game with a clear game plan, um, which was to to get people behind the ball and play on the break. And actually, first half that I thought it, it looked decent. You think about how badly they've done at Anfield in recent years. You know the absolute batterings they've taken. Here it took Liverpool until just before half time to go ahead, and then it was a goal from a set piece. And you know there were moments, particularly with with Nicola Pepe, who started his first Arsenal game, getting in behind the Liverpool back four, who were pressing very high up the pitch as we're, as we're used to seeing them do. Um, but yeah, I think the the real turning point was that that Liverpool penalty early in the second half. David Luiz instinctively pulls back Mo Salah after realising he's on the wrong side of him. Salah tucks the penalty away. And I thought Salah really looked back to his best yesterday. I thought against Arsenal he was brilliant. And his second goal just summed that up beautifully. He gets past David Luiz on halfway, speeds past Nacho Monreal and, and tucks it bottom left. Right. Well, a lot of the tactical analysis of this game is that has been that Liverpool were on fire and, and Emery basically brought a can of petrol. But you, you feel that their tactics weren't entirely wrong. Daniel, what was your take? Yeah, I think the same. I, I mean, it surprised me, the plan, to effectively clog the middle of the pitch and allow or even invite Liverpool's two fullbacks to come as far as they wanted, given that Robertson and Alexander-Arnold are the most creative fullbacks in the league. That would sound like playing into their hands, but this is the problem with playing Liverpool. They have so many different ways to beat you. You know, they go for an early wave of of kind of blitzkrieg to dominate you. They go for counter-attacking football. They use the fullbacks creatively. If you try and sort of throttle the fullbacks, then the front three just move in this one unit that that can make you look foolish, they knock on the door so many times and in so many different ways that unless you are a, a very solid, settled defensive unit, you will struggle. And, and Arsenal aren't that. That's fair, but w- wouldn't you think job one is to do something about Liverpool's fullbacks? Emery reasoned that the front three was so fluid that having Socrates and David Luiz dragged out of position would cause them more problems than allowing the fullbacks to ball. At least if you give the fullbacks the ball, you know what Liverpool are going to do. Those fullbacks are going to cross, I think, 21 times between right. Roberts and Alexander. 21 crosses first half. So they knew what they were facing. And actually, until they conceded a goal from a set piece, which was poor marking, it pretty much worked. The crosses came in, they defended them and probably should have scored on the break. The reality is, is that as soon as Liverpool get a foothold, i.e. a goal from a set piece... 
you're behind the eight ball and it's pretty much impossible to get back into the game. They're unbeaten in 42 league matches at Anfield and they've beaten better teams than Arsenal there. Absolutely swarming performance from Liverpool in the first half, particularly Arsenal, dispossessed in their own defensive third, this stat from Adam Bate, uh, dispossessed Arsenal in their own defensive third eight times in the first half. That's the most by any team this season, the most by Arsenal this decade. Liverpool are supreme pressing side. They, if you don't know what you're doing when there's no one to scream man on, you are going to get pickpocketed. Arsenal were, for the most part, okay. Uh, and like Daniel said, I think when you look at Arsenal's back four, Socrates and David Luiz, they're very good defenders at the things they're good at. They're very, very bad once they're running towards their own goal. So giving the fullbacks what they can do. So Luiz and Socrates, well, oh, the ball's in front of me. This is fine. That's a good plan. And, you know, Pepe takes his opportunity. Arba takes his opportunity. But Arsenal have a greater foothold in that game. It's, it was unfortunate. And I don't think it was... Not quite the 3-1 drubbing you may have believed. There was a moment in the first half that kind of most people took as a kind of takeaway from the game, which was poor Danny Ceballos, who was brilliant the week before, surrounded with probably four or five Liverpool players and still somehow barely having an option to, to pass the ball and just kind of launching across his own box like a, maybe an under-11 might when panicked and the ball basically creating a chance for Liverpool. And he is a very good passer of the football. He's a very intelligent footballer. So the fact that he couldn't find a passing lane out of that situation shows just how hard it is to play against Liverpool. There was another moment with Ceballos later on, or Danny Onions as we like to call him. <laughs> where he got um, sombreroed by oh, the extraordinary yes. oh, by Firmino. Firmino. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely beautiful bit of skill. Something you very, see very rarely. I mean, you sort of go back to Neymar's early days at Santos when he seemed to do it every other match. But apart from that, it's not something you see very often to just scoop the ball from the turf over an opponent. Uh, and I think if, if, you know, if, if that had gone in, it would have been one of, the, you know, one of the goals of the century. As it was, he didn't, he didn't really catch it all that well. But yeah, Ceballos struggled I felt and Unai Emery admitted as much I mean we saw him you know sort of moonwalking through the midfield against Burnley on his home debut looking very impressive and I think just as as Carl was saying the intensity against Liverpool is so much greater against that I thought Joe Willock played really well playing in midfield again um, I think he started has he started every league game so far this season and he was really impressive and and at the at the source of of some of Arsenal's best attacking moments in in the first half in particular and I, I think he sort of stepped up to the plate where you know seeing that Ceballos wasn't doing the job expected of him as the player at the tip of the midfield diamond um, and, and Willock sort of took it upon himself to try and you know break the lines and make things happen and, and I thought he looked really good because as he looked and, and great as Mo Salah was Firmino was the, the star of the show yeah as he so often is that kind of underrated star the, the the still point around which everyone else seems to turn the main conclusion from the game for me was was David Luiz's performance though because he he is, for all the talk of Arsenal winning the transfer window or improving this summer, he was the only central defender they signed. And the question was whether Arsenal would drag him to their levels or he would be able to somehow drag Arsenal up to his. And the reality is is that in a settled defence, his bad points can be accounted for and even covered by his good points. But in a defence like Arsenal's, it just he's just going to stick out, I think. You know, the way he pulls the shirt is a mistake. He then complains about the decision and then 10 minutes later, desperately tries to atone for it by charging out. And Salah's too good for that. And Premier League attackers are too good for that. He's going to have to stay in line, otherwise they're going to be in big trouble. Liverpool, though. Danny Murphy now openly touting them for the title this year, Carl. I'm a Manchester United fan, so I'm going to say this with pain lips. It would be nice if Liverpool won the league. The... the the worrying thing about Liverpool is there there is a very good conceivable notion where they get 90 points, 95 points, and then still don't even come close to Manchester City. This Liverpool side is one of the greatest Premier League sides in history. Defensively smart, diligent in midfield, one of the greatest front threes we've seen in Premier League history. The only problem is one of the other greatest Premier League sides of all time are Manchester City right now, right. which is annoying. I can imagine if you're Mane or Firmino or Henderson, you must be frustrated well. The Champions League helps. It is worth um, taking a step back to look at Liverpool's home form as well because the season, the full season before Klopp arrived, 14-15, they scored fewer league goals at home than Stoke City, Liverpool. They were mediocre in, at both ends of the pitch. This kind of normalisation of them scoring three goals every, pretty much every home game, I think they're 42 unbeaten home games at, in a, at the moment. They've scored three or more goals in 23 of them. Like You will not drop points at home generally if you do that. And that kind of normalisation is a testament to Klopp because it wasn't always like that and it wasn't like that before he got there. Liverpool got very lucky with injuries last season and all three members of their front three were playing deep into July. I, w- I was not expecting Liverpool to be this good this early. I thought they were going to have 
AFCON, Nations League, Copa America hangovers, but they keep on ticking. Didn't get the clean sheet, though. Torreira, yeah. who, who looked uh, very lively uh, when he came on. And, and Adrian does remain one question mark for them, but in all other regards, an excellent afternoon's I, work. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a worry that they keep letting these goals in um, and we saw that in the opening game against Norwich um, they won 4-1 but Norwich got in behind so many times um, and you know they struggled to, to overcome Southampton uh, in the second game should have had a clean sheet but <laughs> but for uh, but for uh, that calamitous error by Adrian at the end of the game and then they let in a, you know a bit of a sloppy goal against Arsenal and you saw the annoyance in the Liverpool defenders Andy Robertson you know sort of like throws his, his arms in the air they're obviously conscious that this, this porousness could, could cost them in future Luckily for them at the moment, it isn't, and and perhaps these early warning signs in letting these avoidable goals in will help them sort of firm up over the over the, the next few weeks. The only caveat to that is that nobody really is defending pretty well at the moment. The last season's top four have only got one clean sheet between them, so everyone seems to be having these teething problems this season. If they score three goals a game, it's fine, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, Klopp will want to tighten it up. City, meanwhile, also got a comfortable three-one win. Uh, Silver running the show there as they dispatched a lively-looking Bournemouth. Yeah, Bournemouth are, unfortunately, the perfect team for Manchester City to play against, aren't they? Bournemouth like to play open passing football. They kind of want to press, but not press the great amount. So City will go, OK, fine. Here's all of our three eights. We're going to pass lovely triangles around you. And when you get tired, here's Sergio Aguero to sock you in the mouth. A very, very assured performance for Manchester City. Raheem Sterling is the best quasi inside forward number nine in Europe right now the, the way he's finishing is at such a automatic dependable clip it makes a mockery of the time where everyone thought he couldn't shoot he mm. completely appeared out of nowhere people in Zaghi style for that goal of his speaking of dependable uh, Andrew Lang would like a word on Harry Wilson who this time came up with a sumptuous free kick says Andrew Lang shades of Nakamura's pre- perfect free kick against Van der Sar and Man United yeah the only the only slight negative i think about about both Wilson and Mount who are obviously both on loan uh, to Derby in the championship last season and have both started this season as if they are Premier League naturals, is that they probably should have been in the Premier League last year. If these loans had come a year earlier, I think they would have a strong case for being top 10, top 6 Premier League teams. I know Mount's kind of there now with Chelsea, but yeah, that's the only negative because they were both good enough last season. They really were. And they're both doing exactly what they did last season. And I think they're capable of doing a high league. Nineteen eighty-nine, a number, another summer, listener. Let's take you back to this craziest of years, eighty-nine, when Margaret Thatcher, George Bush, and Mikhail Gorbachev were formally declaring an end to the Cold War. The charts were filled with smash hits from New Kids on the Block and Jive Bunny. And in the cinemas, you could enjoy the delights of Driving Miss Daisy, perhaps Back to the Future Part Two, Tango and Cash, or the film to see really, Do the Right Thing. Amidst all this excitement, Crystal Palace last one at Old Trafford. Here come Palace again. There are players over on the far side. Right at the near post. Oh, and it's squeezed in. 2-1 Palace. 30 fruitless years later. How about this? It is Old Trafford where the Eagles get their first win and first goals of the season. Joining us now, still reeling from the win and probably the open top bus parade, Ed Malion of the Athletic and proper Palace fandom. Ed, what extraordinary times to be a Palace fan. It was a good sporting weekend, if you like Palace, and if you also like uh, England cricket. Um, Old Trafford was probably slightly less of a surprise, but it it felt pretty damn good, um, especially kind of getting all those texts from Man United fans just when that Daniel James equaliser went in, uh, only for Patrick Van Arnholt to go down the other end and just finish them off. Did you feel that was a moment of history? What kind of jig did you dance at that point? Uh, I was I was kind of just punching the sofa a lot in in joy at that point. It was uh, the thing is, I, I've seen us win at Old Trafford. I saw us in the League Cup when Darren Ambrose scored that incredible goal from about forty yards out, um, which Gary Neville once called the best goal he's ever seen at Old Trafford, which I think might have been caught a little bit in the moment. But uh, it was just it was just rare as well because I I was also kind of looking at the team before the game and I just thought we had absolutely no chance. Um, it's it was a very conservative looking, very narrow looking four four two, and then. I don't know, Jordan Ayew has this season just suddenly turned into an actual football player, which is great. 
Uh, Zaha has been excellent. And then, I mean, the midfield really came through in a way that I didn't expect. And to be honest, United were pretty abject as well in terms of creating chances in open play. They did very, very little. Roy Hodgson afterwards saying that you'd ridden your luck. So how much does this change your perception of Palace's season? Are you still in a lot of danger, do you think? <laughs> I, th- I still think the biggest story around Palace is off the field. I think it's uh, what's going to happen with this ownership situation. You know, the Americans uh, who invested in the club want to sell their stake. And uh, the problem is finding someone else who will buy in on the same terms and to keep Parrish in charge. If they can't find that, then, you know, the club might have to change hands completely and that completely alters the landscape at, at Palace. So we don't know what to expect almost. But, you know, on the field, I was a bit worried after those first two games. I thought Palace were pretty poor in both. But this is kind of, this is, it felt like a kickstart sort of moment. This is the sort of result you need. They've got players who can come into the team and provide a bit more creativity. Camarasa. Um, has been weirdly out of the squad for the last two games, but I think he's going to come in. Um, James McCarthy has looked half decent when he's been playing. And, and Jordan Ayew, if Jordan Ayew can play at this level rather than the level we've seen of him over the last 12 months, then it's going to be a completely different kind of forward line for Palace. I think it's really touching you say it's going to kickstart Palace's season. You, Villa up next at Selhurst Park. Guaranteed to lose that now after this win, surely. Yes, yeah. Well, the, the home record. I mean, if you look at the numbers, the split is unbelievable. That Palace have been getting all these points on the road, and I think it's because they are set up so well to counter attack. But at home at Sellers, they've been pretty dreadful for the last year, year and a half now. Um, I did see a, an Opta league table today that said uh, since February, Palace are actually third in the league after Liverpool and Man City in terms of points. I think that's slightly misleading considering um, they're only about a point ahead of the eighth best team. But you know, they're, they're kind of. On a roll under Roy Hodgson, uh, it felt like the start of the season had gone a bit slow. I think the transfer thing and the ownership problems uh, are kind of coming back to haunt the club a little bit. But Palace can get through to January, I think, with with 30-odd points at this rate. And that will guarantee survival for another season. And then they can sort the stuff off the pitch. And on the subject of transfers, this whole Wolf Sahar thing... Would it be catastrophic if he goes? Do you think he will go? Paris Saint-Germain, the latest possible destination for him? It would be catastrophic for the club's chances of survival if he went because, uh, I mean, the thing about Palace and the way they play is they they absolutely need him because they need someone who can pick up the ball and quickly transport it 40, 50 yards up the field. And without him in the team, uh, you've got maybe Andros Townsend who, being generous, could do that and, and no one else. So if they were to sell Zaha, they'd effectively be confirming their own relegation. It would need to be uh, one hell of a deal coming from PSG, I think, to make that happen. And even so, I think Parrish knows that you're going to lose, what, £150 million if you get relegated. So uh, that's kind of closer to the figure that Palace would need, considering they can't get a replacement for three, four months. But if he digs in his, his heels and demands the move, are, are Palace's hands tied? So one of the things that kind of I heard all summer was that Palace were pretty confident for, you know, he obviously, Zaha was orchestrating an attempt to get out of the club, well, him and, and his uh, representatives. And that started right around the Champions League final when he gave that interview to the Daily Mail saying that he wanted to try a Champions League club. And then gradually, you know, they ramp it up one step at a time until you get the transfer request formally, all those things. But Palace were always confident that he'd never go on strike as such. Like, you know, he kind of feels like he has such an affinity with the club that he was never going to down tools. And I think uh, that's not going to happen at any stage. And I think Palace know that if they hold on to him, Chelsea might be a bidder uh, next time once their transfer ban's over. Arsenal might still be interested. There could be PSG in the mix. There might be other teams who want to take a go. So I think Palace is definitely going to hold on to him until at least January. Nice to see Crystal Palace doing well because, you know, listeners, you've heard, there's been a lot of doubters. A lot of people keen to write off their chances on this pod as well, Yes, strangely enough. But uh, that's an extraordinary table that Ed mentions there. Yeah, I mean, he's right in saying that... Could you just explain, break that down to me one more time? So Palace have got 30 points since, I think, beating Fulham on February the 2nd, which is the third highest in the Premier League. It's um, Liverpool and Manchester City have more. As Ed said, there is a... It's slightly skewed in that Palace also have about three more points than the team in 11th in that table. So it's but just still? But yeah, still, they've got 30 points, which they needed to stay up because they were in big trouble last season. The, the thing about is that this is Palace. They are, there's a remarkable statistic that I saw on Twitter, which is that they're the last team to win at the Etihad, the last team to win at Anfield, the last team to win at the Emirates, and the last team to win at Old Trafford now. They go away to big clubs and do this. They dig in and somehow get these counter-attacking wins. And I think they're probably underestimated by those opponents. But... It's the teams around them that seem to cause them problems. So does this in any way change your prediction, Daniel, that uh, they'll be going down at the end of the season? 
I didn't see the win coming, obviously, I'll be honest. Uh, I still think, uh, when I said they would go down, what I will say is it looked much more like Wilfred Zaha would leave. It now looks like they, they are more likely to keep him, which is brilliant. And he is their chance of staying up. All right. And how much impact does Gary Cahill have creaking into their starting line? Uh, very good against teams that are just kind of trying to, again, against these teams, trying to knock on the door and just batter it down it's when you get teams that play on the counter-attack and he's having to play towards his own goal that he's in a bit of trouble I see Carl let's talk about Man United then John Morgan asks is the last two weeks Man United's season condensed fine against a team playing open football that allows the counter but when tasked with breaking a stubborn defence the lack of creativity shows absolutely Manchester United's midfield can only dominate a game for around about half an hour because as good as Paul Pogba is he's only one man and his Midfield partners are nowhere near the standard of a team that wants to play in the Champions League. So they get maybe half an hour and Pogba's feeling it. And then if he gets tired or if he gets swarmed or overwhelmed, if they haven't scored in that half hour, that's it. Donezo. Among the kind of rogues gallery of really, really bad Man United performances that have shocked United fans out of their kind of preconceptions of what kind of club they are since the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson, where does this defeat sit? I think it's mid-tier. There's been so many defeats in the banter era. There's the defeat against Norwich, where I think they, you, Van Hal tried to play uh, Chris Smalling as an emergency striker. There was the game against Spurs, where Van Hal tried to use Ashley Young as a false nine. Um, they lost 2 home to Cardiff last yeah, season. Right. Uh, Mourinho and his various nonsenses, uh, where Mark Hughes couldn't beat him, so then Mark Hughes got sacked when he was in charge of Southampton. The, losing in the last minute, because Paul Pogba got dispossessed, and David De Gea once again has that glitch in his goalkeeping technique from long shots is mid-tier now in terms of oh great United are terrible they didn't get a particularly fair shape from those referees did they it's fine is right. it if Manchester United were better they would have won that game but they weren't and I don't, I'm, I'm complaining about the referee is one of those right they did get things. awarded one spot kick and uh, <laughs> irony klaxon where have we put it it's over here somewhere but Tom handle this if you could yes obviously all the debate after that draw against Wolves was about um, the penalty situation uh Marcus Rashford scored a penalty on the opening day, but this time when they won a penalty at Wolves, it was Paul Pogba who took it. Not a good penalty. Rui Patricio saved it. And Gary Neville got so annoyed uh, in Sky's post-match analysis that his voice hit that squeaky level that it sometimes hits briefly mid-sentence for about 20 minutes. And then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came on and explained, actually, no, this what the plan was that there wasn't really a plan. It was up to Pogba and Rashford to, you know, decide who felt that they were most likely to score against Palace on Saturday. It was Rashford who thought he was most likely to score and he hit the post. So, yeah, a nice nice side order of, of narrative to go with another fairly bleak United performance and result. Although Daniel James, mentioned in dispatches, as uh, Ed was mentioning, did look good. Mm. As a United fan, Carl, uh, do you feel that if you had Maro and Fellaini still, you'd be a top four side? <laughs> I did. I did. I did tweet it out. I said. Oh, did you I, say I said. That, yeah. I said. If United, are United fans allowed to say we miss Fellaini? Yeah, because look, he offers more than Matic. I never want to see Matic play a game for Manchester United because he's got the turning circle of an ocean liner and he slows down the ball dramatically. And also, it is it is a very good plan B to just volley into that amazing widescreen television chest of his mm. uh, to which other players like Daniel James and Martial can profit. Manchester United are not going to be in the Champions League places at the end of the season. Manchester United should not have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as their manager. What are they doing? Where's my director of football? Oh dear, we've gone full Gary Neville. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the, the biggest worry from that performance is when Solskjaer looked to the bench for game changers and there were no injuries in Manchester United's squad. They, they have Alexis Sanchez they don't want and Romelu Lukaku they've got rid of, but there was no injuries in that squad. And he looked to the bench and there was Juan Mata who didn't really get called on until last minutes and has a new contract but isn't apparently wanted. And there's Mason Greenwood who's 17 years old and that's it. And in pre-season, Solskjaer got quite a lot of praise for running the players hard and making them fitter and they all came out and said, I feel brilliant, he's working as hard, double sessions, so old school. At the end of the third game of the season, Shaw has a hamstring injury. Martial's limping around the pitch with an apparent muscle injury. And there's nothing else on the bench. They've got four competitions this season. And Mason Greenwood is the next attacker off the rank. And that is, that is really worrying. Really worrying. They're a mess. Well, that's what I was talking about getting fitter. Pressing is not running harder. They don't have a coordinated press. They have a less experienced manager than Southampton's manager. It's... Ah, ah. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 
one other aspect of that whole the, the latest tombola controversy with R Rashford hitting the post was that once again apparently there was a vile reaction to the player on social media after high profile moves by Twitter and probably other platforms to see what they could do they, uh, they managed to shut down anyone posting a goal video pretty quickly so I think they probably can do it this idea that they are okay we're going to sit down and start monitoring is this is no surprise this has been going on for years uh, and also the the mealy mouth statement of we're going to monitor the top 50 footballers just sends out a message of if you're famous, then we care, but we're not actually bothered about sorting out the problem. It's a nonsense. I mean, worked through it, and I do genuinely believe they do care about this stuff. Right. But I think the problem everyone has, speaking as a black man on the internet who is fairly prominent and gets racist abuse every now and again, right. the problem with this is everyone tries to fight racism as if racism is a very discreet thing you can punch or clamp or put in prison, where what you get... What racism is, it's the disease like cholera in the water is like trying to put a cloud in a headlock. The idea that you're going to monitor the top 50 is hilarious because how do you rank that? Are you, is it just the black players that play in the Champions League clubs? Or who's the 52nd best, most prominent black footballer? Maybe Tammy Abraham, yeah. who got racially abused last week. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think one of the where you get this problem is you can. You can very easily do this if you are willing to hire several dozen people to just monitor these accounts. Most companies don't want to do that. You, you'd prefer to automate it. You prefer to put it up to machine learning. Machine learning has loads of problems with reading. I'm going to say it, nigger, reading that word uh, because of how different people decide to use it in different terms. With numerals and stuff. Well, with numerals and the fact that black people use it and oh, I see, right. abusive yeah. people use it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. right. Um, so yeah, there, there's always going to be racist abuse. I'll probably have a fun tweet after this podcast today. It happens. Harry Maguire suggesting that you need to give a passport laughable. Racists are always going to be racist, even with their government names. Phil Neville's idea that football players should boycott social media for six months, asinine. Why do I have to live my life less? Because racists are about, I'm not going to do that. I'm yeah, if anyone should come off social media, it's not the people being amused. Yeah, abused. yeah. yeah it's just well, victim blaming, isn't it? Yeah. It's nonsense. Everyone knows what I think about Phil Neville. Um, this is going to go on for a long time. When people make, oh, you know, this is not a football problem, it's a societal problem. I'm speaking as a black man who is working in football. Mm. I much rather prefer to know that for 90 minutes or for two hours, people aren't going to be racist. Because I'm like, oh, sweet. This is my, like, not racist two hours <laughs> of the day. And then I can go deal with racism later. I mean, you know, who's the prime minister? I'm not on illusions about racist society right now. Come on. Off to the Tottenham Stadium to hear about another famous away win. Palace, with that historic victory where Old Trafford, it's been more recent that the Magpies have got the three points at Tottenham, but this still ranked as a major surprise, Tom. I doubt you were expecting it, were you, as you rocked up to the Tottenham Stadium? No, not at all. I, I think the expectation was that Spurs, having got that you know, quasi-miraculous draw at Man City uh, and a slightly scratchy win over Villa, would sort of use this to, to blow off the cobwebs a bit and, and really launch their season. Um, and that Newcastle, having been very soundly beaten by Norwich last weekend, um, would find themselves on the end of a battering. Um, and... It was a very different kind of match and I, I think Newcastle and Steve Bruce deserve a, an enormous amount of credit for the way that they set themselves out. Ultra defensive, lots of men behind the ball, but at the same time, Bruce picked both Miguel Almiron and Anissa Maximin, who had to go off injured and was replaced by Christian Atsu, in support of Joe Ellington. So when Newcastle did go forward, there were players there who could do that and we right. saw that with, with the Newcastle goal. Atsu with, with the chip pass from the left-hand side. Davinson Sanchez gets caught underneath the ball. Danny Rose doesn't um, realise that the danger reacts too late. Joe Ellington tucks it away really nicely. And then the rest of the game just felt like it was Spurs playing sideways passes in front of Newcastle's back mm. 10 um, and not really getting in behind until the last 10 minutes. And when they did finally create chances, there was only really a couple of them. They had 80% of possession Tottenham and only yeah. two shots on target, which is pretty awful. Extraordinary numbers, but still not good enough to beat the power of bringing the players in for training on a Sunday, which seemed to have transformed well, Newcastle. It was a very Benitez-esque performance from Newcastle. So... Benitez last season, it didn't matter if it was home or away who was playing against, but Rafa Benitez was playing against goal difference. And he was like, we're going to be compact, we're going to have a 10 out of possession and whatnot. And Spurs, the moment that Spurs lineup went out, everyone was going, oh no, this is going to be torturous until Christian Eriksen gets on the pitch. Because while Eric Lamella is a very, very good second option as a creative, and he's a fantastic cheat, he's not a lock picker. Um, and Spurs need a lock picker. They do have problems at fullback. They haven't really, you know, recovered since Carl Walker left and Danny Rose 
I was on the impression Danny Rose would be leaving Spurs this summer. So they're weak at fullback, so they don't really have that option from wide areas that Liverpool or Manchester City have. Uh, and it's very much just if they don't have the lockpick in Christian Eriksen, it can be very, very hard to beat teams. Well, that- even when he did come on, they, st- they still weren't able to mm. unlock Newcastle. As you mentioned, 80% possession, the C- well, 79.8 in fact, the second highest figure for a losing side in the Premier League since records, those records began in 2003-04. By the way, the, the side who had an even bigger possession but still lost were? Arsenal? I was no. going to say Man United versus not Man United versus Fulham in that it, Dan Byrne game. No, no, Man City. It, it, it was in August 2016 when Liverpool lost to Burnley despite having 80.4% possession. Sean Dyke is a, <laughs> he, Sean Dyke is a warlock. He frequently he has a fun way of just breaking statistical models. But for Spurs, is it just about Eriksen or Mauricio Pochettino, for example, flagging up afterwards that he thinks his side is lacking unity and desire? Johnny Blaine saying, nothing's changed since last season. We've been predictable and dull for a long time now. Christopher tweeting in saying, what is the deal with Spurs? They seem to lack an urgency. There's no triangles, no short, sharp passing moves. It's summed up by Harry Kane, says Christopher. Yeah, he only had, apparently, I think, seven touches in the second half. And the problem is, is they play this slow passing football that Barcelona, the good Barcelona team, for example, play. But the reality is, is that those plans work because of the change up in speed from slow to fast. Spurs yesterday just had the slow mode. It ended up with a fullback or Hyungmin Son getting the ball and thinking, well, I might as well attempt a little chip cross into the box because there's nothing else. And I've already had the ball four times in this move. And it is too easy to defend. And it is also not a new thing. You know, as you say, Tottenham, I think of in that league table of, that we talked about with Crystal Palace, Tottenham are on 21 points, nine behind Palace. Wow. So they are, I think, 12th or 13th in that table. Fewer points than Newcastle over the same run. So this is not a new thing. Uh, last season, clearly the focus was on the priority was on the Champions League, but they need to look sharp. I've been embarrassed before because I've come on this podcast and said the Poch project is going to end. So I'm not going to... They've got Los Elso. They've got Ndombele. Delhi still yet to play. Tottenham are going to be better and they will. They are still the third best, for my money, the third best team in the country and they will be in the Champions League spaces at the end of the season. They do need freshening up in fullback areas. Last season, what they basically, Poch realised he had no central midfield opportunity so they played what was termed as air raid football which is give it to Suzoko, have him progress the ball vertically as soon as possible um, and then Ericsson can do something. Um, doesn't really work when Ericsson's not there so the pivot of Winks and Suzoko is just Winks is trying to do those clever passes Suzoko's progressing the ball forward really really quickly but Suzoko who's under very clear instructions do not ever shoot and give it to the creative person and don't play before and don't do the pass was just a bit like uh, oh right Lamella and Lamella is not Chris Erickson what was the mood like at the uh, at, at uh, the Tottenham Stadium pretty flat it was pretty flat I mean like you know the acoustics in that place are incredible, and as a consequence, when everyone there is grumbling about misplaced passes right. and and uh, you know aimless crosses and chances not being taken, you you really hear it, and you could hear the Newcastle fans a lot more than you could hear the Spurs fans. And what were they singing? They were singing uh, "How <laughs> must you be? We're winning away." Uh, notably, um, what else are they singing? I don't think any of the new boys have got their own songs yet. I'm, I may right. be wrong. I can't remember hearing any sort of jazzy. Joe Ellington numbers, but yeah, and, Ellington numbers. Perhaps. Well, perhaps, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's one uh, you know mm. potentially <laughs> fruitful uh, avenue for them to pursue. No, um, right. And then the half, then the full time whistle, you got a smattering of quite half hearted boos, and then a massive roar from the Newcastle and They've all got their shirts off and they're twirling them around their heads, and uh, nice, quite the contrast. FPL doctor says, surely Steve Bruce deserves some credit this week. Took a lot of stick from the media and fans. Mm. One of the most experienced English coaches around bet he would get more respect if his name was Stefan Brusigno. No, I, I love it. When very people, multicultural. I love it when people Stefan do that. Brusigno. I would say, right, firstly, he did fair play to me. Changed the three-five-two that was not working in the first two games, uh, and he clearly did get more out of them. Uh, he will be judged very much like Crystal Palace. There's an argument to say that Newcastle under Bruce are perfectly set up for those sort of games where teams sort of expect to roll over them and they just sit deep the pressure comes playing at St James's because if they lose to Watford next week they're, they're still brilliant win but they're still second bottom in the league at the moment and there are still doubts about them and they aren't going to go away if they lose to Watford at home but yeah a massive win for him 
Before Watford, Newcastle are going to be taking on Leicester in the League Cup on Wednesday round of Carabao Cup fixtures that also includes Daniel... Forest Derby. Boom. As for Spurs, their next fixture is the North London Derby. Ooh. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, at Carrow Road, what happened? We'll discover after this. It's nice to have a break from advertising, so here's some classical music. Nice. Mm. At Paddy Power, we thought football shirts could use a break from advertising too. That's why we've sponsored Huddersfield Town shirt without a logo and started the Save Our Shirt campaign where any football team that Paddy Power sponsor will be, well, unsponsored. <laughs> Don't you wish we weren't on your shirt too? Now, let's get back to the music. <laughs> Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. 18 plus, begumbleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Chelsea get their first win under their new manager. Hurrah. Two goals from Dami Abraham as well. In a 3-2 victory at Carrow Road. Puki gets his fifth of the season. Rob Kerr says, is there a better start to a season for a striker coming up to the Brem than Puki? Well, I think as people have mentioned, he's level... Uh, in terms of having five goals in three with uh, the very great Pavel yes. Pogrebniak. So that's auspicious. Only scored, I think, one more after that, Pogrebniak, yes. But I, th- I, w- I would feel personally more confident about Puki's ability or you know, yes. to continue this streak. I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt, hasn't he? Right. Tony Robertson mentioning that Neil Lennon admitted this week that he only saw <laughs> Timo Puki or Tamo, as I believe it's meant to be actually, Tamo Puki play for 45 minutes before signing him because he went to the wrong city for the match only got there for the second half what other players would benefit from only being scouted for one half of football asked Tony Robertson um, yeah not sure Brendan Rodgers Liverpool side always started hot didn't they yeah so, it's, it's those players who I love him very dearly but Andy Reid was one of those where he'd have a very good first half and then might tire slightly in the second half well it, this was a, a brilliant fixture in the first half wasn't it one one after of what not 6 minutes a proper early kickoff on a saturday um the idea that yes it was chelsea's first win but also they scored three goals and went hanging on against newly promoted norwich i'm not going to disrespect norwich i had them finishing quite comfortably out of the relegation spaces before the start of the season i think they're going to finish 13th or there or thereabouts um strange one uh, really nice show of unity from Tammy Abraham after he scored his goal to, to celebrate with Frank Lampard and the rest of the Chelsea players joining him. They're going to be a lot of fun to watch this season. But I don't, Which one? Chelsea? Chelsea. Oh, yeah? Uh, but I don't have them finishing the Champions League spaces. They're the Europa League standard. And I do like Tammy. They probably will have to start Giroud in all the bigger games. I thought Abraham took his two goals beautifully. I mean, the first one, a really difficult half volley. Um, to a cross from from Cesar's out on the right, and then and then the winner works the space really well on the edge of the box, and another really precise finish bottom left, and Mason Mount as well, little pass from Christian Pulisic cutting across and bending it top right, and you know if Chelsea are going to have any kind of season, these players need to catch on very quickly, um, and you know that they will have more more difficult games than that but i think you know if if chelsea were going to have any kind of season they needed to have a performance like this where the youngsters prove that they could be relied upon so it's you know it's a potential foundation stone yeah one without angelo cante as well which is uh, a big thing given again given the young player i wonder if if lampard might consider giro and abraham in some games because the way he was kind of darting around and having giro as that target man eden hazard said last season that he loved doing that if you could maybe play tammy abraham slightly out wide and have him drifting in for giro holding the ball up i wonder if that might work but if he wants to get him and mount in the team it might be and pulisic it might be a little bit difficult but yeah i wonder if he considered that hmm. all right well uh, the points go to chelsea but plenty of positives for both teams in an exciting early kickoff on saturday your weekend card took you all the way to the amex for saints 2-0 victory over brighton what was your big takeaway from that uh hustle finally played 4-2-2-2 which is that's the what he wants to play that's his preferred foot formation uh, Red Bull and he's been like on his way cr- trying to get it done at Southampton but Southampton haven't got great centre-backs uh, now they've got Kevin Danso on loan he played him at left-back because of an injury to Ryan Bertrand um, so we saw the 4-2-2-2 it looked okay I give it a B- minus. Uh, one thing to look out for for future Southampton games they're going to get a lot of throw-ins because of the way their press works um, so if for some reason you ever get to watch a Southampton game get a right I maybe. think they're maybe the second 
lowest rating for televised games. I think only Bournemouth gets lower uh, television ratings than Southampton. So they're Is not, that right? They're not on TV that much. Hmm. But when they are, they will get a lot of fair-ins because their nominal wide men play quite central and their front six on the press like to drift left and right to basically box players out to compensate for their lack of width. I so see. what happens there is just the opposition is like, oh no, we've got nowhere to pass to. Whoops, giving away a throw-in. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's fun. Dream Sislak uh, asks for your thoughts on Musa Ginepro. Ginepro. Uh, it's really fun when a player gets a ball and you can very clearly see them going, I'm having this. He just walloped it. It. it he looks like the most electrifying talent here, here's some hyperbolic statement for you. Uh, most electrifying talent Southampton have had since Sadio Mane. Boom. And do you have an update on the mysterious case of the missing replica home kits? I'm looking into it. You can't buy the home kit right now. Um, this yes, week, sir. they're going to release a statement about when the home kit is available. But it's very peculiar. Apparently, they've had, they've had problems with shirts being available on sale for the last three seasons now. I see. Southampton are in action on Tuesday night at Fulham in the Carabao Cup. And what may prove a very... Exciting fixture indeed. You going along to that, Carl? I am indeed. I'm, I'm excited to see. I'm hoping Buffal starts because he's Ooh. he's got a fun dribbling style. Every now and again, it looks like he's just switched the gravity off. I think I love Buffal. I think he's great. That amazing goal he scored was it last season, season before last against West Brom, where he picked it up midway inside his own half, beat up. about six players, two of whom ran into each other. It's one of the best goals I've seen. If Southampton score. A goal 10% as good against Fulham as Nottingham Forest did after three minutes on Saturday. Carl is in for an absolute treat, that's all I'm saying. Just describe it, could you paint? Uh, uh, so two minutes into the game, the goalkeeper touches the ball for the first time and then begins a passing move in which all 11 players touch the ball in right. about 45 seconds. And only one player touches the ball more than twice, oh. as in has more than two touches. Mm -hmm. And it ends with Lewis Graben at the back post making it 1-0. Seamless piece of Forest crowbarring there. I mean, a resident Forest fan. Yeah, that is too much. But it, well, it is, if, if Derby had scored that goal, I would say it was beautiful because it was a thing of beauty. Wow. All right. Uh, loads more excitement coming up after this. Listener, quick update on Berry. They had that deadline on Friday, but it's now 5pm on Tuesday. Yes. But this is now not just to demonstrate tangible interest, but to actually complete a sale. That's right. And the, the potential purchases are saying that's a very tight deadline. And well, yeah, may, may not bank be holiday on Monday. Exactly. So. The bigger issue, we should say, is that um, while everyone's been mourning Berry's potential end as a club, Bolton might be next. Because it very much sounds like that their takeover has fallen through as we speak on Monday morning. And the words they use in the club statement is, we will begin... As of Wednesday morning, the procedure to close down the club. Oh, my word. So they could potentially be gone. I mean, everyone knew Bolton were in trouble as well. It's not as if this has caught anyone on the blind side. But, yeah, them going and potentially Berry going would be remarkably humbling for the, for the EFL and obviously horrific for supporters as well. They have the same deadline, 5pm on Tuesday. Indeed. And a really dramatic... Uh, scenario in front of them you can get more on that on Wednesday's Totally Football League show by which point obviously we'll know mm. what the situation uh, they'll also find time for some happier tales about probably Leeds on top of the championship Stoke Swansea Swansea yeah, Stoke's flying. not so happy Swansea flying as you say mm. And no doubt, Louis Graben's uh, remarkable goal for Forrest will get a mention as well. Anyway, that's the Totally Football League show. And hopefully it will feature some good news about Berry and Bolton. Elsewhere in the Premier League, Watford's problems continue, beating 3-1 at home. Burnley drew 1-1 with Wolves. Leicester got a victory away at Bramall Lane. And on Friday night, do you remember this? Aston Villa got their first win of the season. Yeah, Everton were... Ooh. Yeah, Ouch. really bad, yeah. I've, said, I've wanted to say this for a while. I like Awobi, but he does play football as if he's wearing a rucksack. Who's that, sorry? Awobi. Oh. His running style and his shooting style is very unorthodox. And in um, fairness to Awobi, he actually livened Everton up a little bit when he came on. But I, I felt like the entire game, from an Everton perspective, consisted of Andre Gomez and Morgan Schneiderlin just exchanging sideways five-yard mm -hmm. passes. Uh, there was just no thrust whatsoever uh, and Villa in fairness really impressive um, big Wesley getting his first goal um, I thought he I thought he played brilliantly took his game goal really nicely uh, Yotta uh, creates his goal plays really well John nice. McGinn as impressive yep. as ever you know constantly up and down uh, and Tyrone Mings who was a big injury yeah. or looked like an injury doubt prior to kickoff seemed to have tweaked something in the warm-up 
an absolute man mountain. Really, really mm. impressive stuff from Villa uh, and, and really, really worrying from Everton. Right. Michael but, Cox noting that Everton against Aston Villa is the most played game in top flight history, is the most repeated statistic in top flight history. <laughs> ah, Excellent. So, yeah, good for Villa and a deserved win there for Dean Smith as they get themselves underway. Ooh, Jack Grealish as well, ending that long streak of yes. Premier League defeats. Uh, 20 in a row it was. A quick word, mm. Everton-wise, for Tom Davies, who has, given what Tom was rightly saying about Everton's midfield, and given that they sold Idrissa Gay, and given that Jean-Philippe Gamin is is injured, uh, he's played 20 minutes since February in the Premier League, Tom Davies, and at 21 now, really needs to start getting some football. Uh, I was really surprised he didn't start at Villa Park ahead of Schneidlin, because what what you said about Schneidlin, Tom, is is exactly what you expect of Schneidlin, and they need more than that. Leicester, what a goal by Harvey Barnes as they oh. take three points away at Sheffield United. A lot of love as well for James Madison. And Jamie Vardy getting his first goal. <laughs> do you see a celebration, James? The season. I, he, went, he, he is a Sheffield Wednesday fan and he right. went right the, the away end and did exactly as you'd expect Jamie Vardy to do and sort of cupped his ears to the crowd. And there is a man who use, uses hate more than oxygen as fuel. <laughs> Anger is an energy. Yeah, <laughs> Tough on Sheffield United, was it? Chris Wilder was incredibly scathing of their performance. Mm. He said uh, he was always said he was embarrassed that they were clapped off the pitch by supporters. So probably not a good performance. Wolves playing their third game in seven days after that very impressive win away in Turin, uh, hosted Burnley and salvaged a point with uh, Jimenez's penalty late on. Uh, I think fixture congestion there is a bit of an issue, isn't it? Yeah, although this is the kind of the time of the season where you'd think it might help rather than hinder, given that teams are seemingly getting up to speed. I think it will eventually because it's a small squad. But right. there, they are one of only two teams to have not won a game so far. Wolves. Mm, Wolves and Watford, yeah. Although they did obviously in the Europa League. 3-2 up against Torino uh, and they'll be welcoming them to Molyneux on Thursday. And uh, as we mentioned in the Battle of the W's, Watford losing 3-1 at home to West Ham with Allaire. Was that, was that him getting off the mark for the season as well? Yes, it was yes. indeed. Right. And ooh, Mark Noble as well on a historic day for him. 15th anniversary of his debut. Opens the scoring with that penalty. And they're already talking. This week's manager on the brink is now Javi Gracia. Now, Daniel, you've talked about what a well-run club this is in the past. Mm. What's your take on the current predicament at Watford? It needs sorting out because I think I did, you know, I quoted the statistic last week and we can just update it. I think that's 31 points in the last 31 league games, which is pretty close to guaranteed relegation form. And the cup run kind of covered that. I feel for Grassi a bit because the defensive recruitment has been shambolic. He made no secret of his desire to get new defenders in the summer and the only one they signed was Craig Dawson from West Brom who I don't think improves their team. And Dawson and Cathcart as a centre-back pairing is, um, well, it's smacks of upper-end championship basically and they're getting punished at the moment. So there were rumours that Grassi will be sat this week. I think he will certainly get the Newcastle game but if they go and lose to if they're going to lose to Newcastle, the team directly above them, then the, I think he'll probably go. Wow, that does feel harsh. Away at Newcastle, you can lose a game there. And this is a, yeah. a side that... I mean, ha- but That's nearly a whole season of going under a point a game. So, hmm. yes, the cup run was brilliant, but there have been problems with defending for six or seven months now. And it's not just Gracia's fault, as I say, because the recruitment has been poor, but he will pay the price. That's how it works. It makes this, He had signed a seven-year contract? Yes. There were a lot of um, stipulations to it. But uh, yeah, it is It is unfortunate for Watford. They are a club that will be able to attract decent managers and have a structure in place that that manager can re- realistically come in and pick up quickly, I think. Mm. That's, what, that's what we've always talked about. He is their ninth manager in six years, so they certainly had some practice mm. at making changes of that nature. If you're hungry for more Watford information, and I know I am, you can... Read a proper piece on all of this on totallyfootballshow.com, our uh, lovely website, which also features loads of other great stuff and links to all our wide, uh, our panoply of podcasts. Good word, that. Tom. Yeah, quick Mark Noble anecdote, um, who scored West Ham's opener 15 years on from making his debut for the club. When he made his debut in a Carling Cup game in 
August 2004, his family were all away on holiday in Cyprus. So when the game finished, there was no one to take him home and he had no money for a he? bus fare. I don't know, a teenager, I guess. So he had to he walk had, home. He had no, I'm sorry, he had no money for a bus fare and the club left him to walk home. That's, that's his story, yeah. He walked home from Upton Park. 15 years ago. James 15 Rick. years ago, yeah. In 2004. Well, that's a sort of, that's you know, kind of says. throwback... Bus fares, bus fares, more is. or less like. Well, I suppose he's a teenager, so he's calling what, him one pound fifty. You're calling him a liar. I, this is detail that I'm afraid I'm, I'm not. I'm not part of. I'm a journalist, to. and I'm just scrutinising. Tom, that's an incredible story. Thank you. Now, having covered all of the Premier League's uh, fixtures, very shortly we'll be having a quick check on some of the big headlines, the things you need to know about what went on over on the continent. But right now, here comes producer Ben. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line, listeners. And Lee, we're going to start, please, with Watford, who are in a terrible run of form, not just this season, where it's three defeats from three. Goes back a long, long way. So, what are Javi Gracia's job prospects looking like? <laughs> yeah, Javi Gracia, Javi a nightmare. It's now 6-5, to five, his next Premier League manager sacked. He's the favourite in that particular betting market. Perhaps more disturbingly for the club at least, it's 1-8 to eight Watford finish in the bottom half. And our odds suggest they'll finish 13th, which is probably not where they're aiming. Another terrible result at Old Trafford, of course. So how long has Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got? Well, they can't play Chelsea every week, can they? Poor old Ollie. It's 8-15 to 15, odds on that they finish outside the top four now, despite being favourites just barely a week ago. As for the penalty fiasco at the club, it's 4-6, to six, also odds on, that Paul Pogba takes the next one, 11-4. to four. They miss it. Carl Anker's been giving us the inside scoop on Southampton today. The Saints, like many other teams, are in League Cup action this midweek. So what are the chances of them winning some silverware this season? Hmm, is it too early to say cup set? Uh, Saints are 50-1 to to win the FA Cup. They're a long shot, but so are a lot of teams. They're the same price, though, as Newcastle, for perspective. I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that one. As for the Carabao Cup, they're 45 to 1, so a slightly shorter price, but they're only narrow favourites to get past Fulham in the next round. And Newcastle are a lot shorter in the bet in there. And finally, Lee, two more goals for Mo Salah this weekend against Arsenal. Give us the markets, please, for the Golden Boot. Yeah, this could be more tight than the title race. Maybe. Uh, Harry Kane remains our favourite at 4 to 1. Mohamed Salah, despite his heroics, is second in the betting at 9-2. to And those two head up the usual suspects at the top. So Raheem Sterling, Sergio Aguero and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang all complete the top five for a bit of a gap to the chasing pack, which is led, of course, by Timu Puki. The Norwich striker is now 16-1 to to win the Golden Poot alongside Sadio Mane and Marcus Rashford. We still think Harry Kane's going to win it. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. We haven't stopped yet, Tom, because we've got lots of things to talk about still, because it's a wide world of football. El Trafico took place on Sunday. Don't know if you were across that, but the LAFC LA Galaxy derby is always a big affair, particularly this time around when LAFC, who are on track to to post the best record in the MLS's or in MLS history, uh, came up against the Zlatan-powered LA Galaxy, who themselves are still challenging for a playoff play. Stop me if I'm wrong with this, uh, Carl. And uh, Zlatan, a, a brace inside, what, 15, 20 minutes? Ibra loves it. It's one of the weirdest derbies at the moment because it's slightly been hijacked by the cult of Ibra. So, mm. obviously... At the moment, uh, Carlos Vela is more or less the best player in MLS. They had that interview where they went to Ibra. What do you think about Vela being the best player? He goes, no, I mean, when I was his age, I was playing in Europe, so therefore I'm better. And then the next game, he went off and scored a hat-trick against LAFC, which is sort of like, oh, blimey. Ibra is obviously not the player he used to be, but as a content machine, as a, uh, that's a good tweet, or that's just great Instagram video fodder. He's perfect for this sort of right. thing. He's it's He's turned a derby that shouldn't really there's only really existed for a couple of years into quite compelling viewing indeed so and Vela did did also score in this uh, game notching up his 27th goal of the season which I think he's heading for a record yes campaign he in terms is of goals. approaching the record that was set by Almiron's best mate Jose Martinez of Atlanta United yes mm. Atlanta United obviously not the team they used to be because Frank De Boer yep. of Crystal Palace fame is Crystal Palace again. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. In Germany, 
big games there. Bayern Munich took on Schalke. Coutinho came on. But it was all about Robert Lewandowski once again as he notched up a hat-trick this time. Uh, Dortmund, meanwhile, beat newly promoted Cologne despite all their fans going to the cathedral for their usual sing-along. Marvellous scenes there. And Sancho got a goal again and an assist. Uh, you can hear more about this from Raphael Honigstein in Tuesday's Totally Football show, in which Julien Laurent will also be telling us what's going to happen now at Paris Saint-Germain. Yes, they did get a win this weekend against Toulouse. And did you see that goal from Eric Choupo-Moting? Absolute beauty. Picks the ball up from Di Maria, tries to play one-two with him, and it bounces back to him. And then sort of tips over through about five opposition players. Shades of the goal that Johan Gorkouf scored Gorkouf against has. PSG for Bordeaux yeah. ten years ago. Um, and then scores with his left foot off the left-hand post and then gets another, um, which was the good news on a night when PSG lost Kylian Mbappe and Edison Cavani and Abdou Diallo to injury. Right. And Mbappe's so uh, is a hamstring one. Looked like a hamstring, yeah. So that's going to be a while. Mm-hmm. And what this means for the whole Neymar, which we're really well, enjoying indeed. that extended transfer yeah. thing. We'll get more on all, all of that. In transfer terms, though, uh, what do you make of Renato Sanchez, uh, erstwhile biggest prospect in world football, who's just left Bayern Munich for Lille? Yeah, I mean, great signing for Lille, I think. Um, they've broken their transfer record to get him. 20 million. Mm. Um, I mean, he was... He's still only 22, I think. Still only 22. I mean, you know, Euro 2016, he was one of Portugal's best players. Yeah. Moved to Bayern off the back of it. He was, you know, European golden boy of the year. And then never really got much of a look in at Bayern. Had that instantly forgettable loan spell at Swansea, where the most memorable thing he did was pass to... Was it an advertising hoarding? A steward. A yes. steward. Passing to a steward. Their, their orange away kit, um, the yellow. Away but, kit. but yeah, you know, still a, a really exciting player, and he'll, he'll get game time at, at Lille, and you know, they're uh, they've got Champions League football to look forward to. So mm-hmm. hopefully, it'll be a bit of a, a turning point for him. Brilliant. In Spain, Real Madrid had gone ahead of Barcelona for the first time in about a thousand, a long time. It was it was eight hundred and something days, but it didn't last long because they got held uh, one bum by Valladolid, and Barcelona took on Betis without Messi. And without Luis Suarez. And Usman Dembele. And Usman Dembele. And lo and behold, Nabil Fekir went and opened the scoring. We thought, uh-oh. And the first half finished with Betis Seville still 1-0 up. But then Barcelona, absolutely, Griezmann basically stepped up. Did you enjoy? I mean, it ended 5-2. You're absolutely right. It was a brilliant last goal there from mm, Lauren. Goal of the game. Right. Although there were some contenders for that. Second one from Griezmann oh, was Griezmann pretty was special. Beauty, yes. But Messi-esque. Th- what I was going to ask you about was Griezmann's <laughs> celebration where he ran the entire length of the sideline to reach somebody who had a little pot of spangly glitter. And oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, so he runs. He basically, in his celebration, he salutes the entire thing. You think, this is going on a while. And then you realise that he's got down to the other corner where there's a guy there with a bucket and that he pours some of this kind of sparkly confetti into Griezmann's hands. Griezmann then stands in front of the photographers and throws it up in the air for his goal celebration shot. He's really learned the art of that's, underplaying it, Griezmann, hasn't he? Well, that's, that's, from, that's from LeBron James. That's the chalk toss LeBron James used right, to do Right, he does time. chalk dust, which has a different impact. I mean, basically, Griezmann's taken chalk dust and improved it exponentially. Griezmann, he, he, he does loved, like an inventive celebration. He when loved, he was at Real Sociedad, he celebrated a goal once by jumping into a car that was parked next to the pitch by one of their sponsors and pretending to drive it, and all his teammates jumped in the back. And then when he went to Atletico kind of lost his way a bit there was just a lot of Fortnite references so good to see that there's a, a bit of creativity coming back into his celebrate uh, celebration with the air guitar because of uh, Lance uh, from well forming of the LA Lakers he does a lot of NBA inspired celebrations okay we'll get Jules's take on all of that we'll reference the fact that in Holland Lee Catamol has now signed for VVV Venlo he got booked as well yeah for, he received a yellow card for his first ever foul in the Eredivisie <laughs> that's nice excitingly almost as we say these words. I'm hearing that Nick Miller for TotallyFootballShow.com has spoken to Lee and got his reaction to that historic first yellow card. You can find out on TotallyFootballShow.com as soon as Nick transcribed that interview. Italy, City A got underway. Yes. What? Bad, it's bad for Milan, wasn't it? Well, yeah, they were awful. They didn't have a single shot no. on target in Sunday's 1-0 defeat away at Udinese. The other headlines included... I mean, there were a bunch of goals pretty much everywhere else. Atalanta coming down, back from 2-0 down to win 3-2 away at Spal. Uh, Juve got their classic 1-0 win. That it was, was hilarious at Parma. that Higuain started. 
Hilarious. Over yeah, I don't think Juve fans thought it was too amusing because <laughs> Delict and Dybala both left on the bench. Game of the weekend, though, with all due respect to the brilliant 3-3 between Roma and Genoa, was Fiorentina-Napoli, which saw the referees gift Fiorentina an early penalty. Uh, Fiorentina went 1-0 up and then they shut up shop and it finished 1-0. Oh, no, it didn't. <laughs> it ended up 4-3 in an absolutely bonkers game, which saw Ribery coming on, which saw... Uh, Kevin Prince boating coming on and scoring almost immediately. It was just a, it was a classic game and uh, sets things up really nicely. Napoli with the win there for next weekend's action, which sees them travel to the Juventus Stadium, the Allianz Stadium, to take on Juve. Oh, one other thing to mention about the Continental Weekend: uh, Vincent Company, as you probably saw, has recused himself. Is that the right word? I think from. Yep. Being a manager at the weekend, uh, and, and he was, he was going to do player manager during the week and then just player at the weekend. But now he's injured as well uh, after the club's latest defeat to Genk. I still, I think I might have tweeted it at the time, but I still think he might be lifting the title for City come May. Right. I still think if it just doesn't work out and City haven't signed another centre-back... Uh, there's a way in that he can just come and be a bit part player in the second half of the season in January. I think that fits for everyone. Has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. Anyway, Tuesday, you can hear more on most of those topics, but a whole bunch of other ones as well, with Rafa Jules, James Horncastle and Alvaro Romeo in the Totally Football Show. Thursday, then we're back again. We'll be joined as we look forward to the weekend by Michael Cox, Pat Nevin, and all the way from Sweden... Frida Fagerland back in so we can ask her about Graham Potter and what he got up to in Sweden and you know other questions too until then everybody thanks so much for coming in on this bank holiday have a super week and listener thank you for joining us we'll speak to you soon you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Listener.